Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thank you guys for joining us. I just finished talking with Julie Z about her new book, Fantasy Islands, Chinese Dreams and Ecological Fears in an Age of Climate Crisis, and this came out in 2015 with University of California Press. Now, the book opens by... I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thank you guys for joining us. I just finished talking with Julie Z about her new book, Fantasy Islands, Chinese Dreams and Ecological Fears in an Age of Climate Crisis, and this came out in 2015 with University of California Press. Now, the book opens by bringing us into the wetlands of Dongtan, and thus into a project to create the world's first great echo city. There were very ambitious plans um, to create this echo city on Chongming, an island that's part of Shanghai, but no significant construction ever took place. And taking us into this fantasy, um, this echo desire, this project is a way of taking us into a whole suite of sites and examples and cases and issues and methodologies for thinking with and thinking through the crisis of ecology, the in- contemporary environmental situation and the way that this is playing out in terms of the built urban environments and also the rural environments of China specifically and of you know many, many more um, areas potentially as we think from this very local case and look outward into potential comparative and linked cases. So this is a book for you if you're interested in Shanghai, in modern China, in the history and practice of ecology and the environment, um, and in really good stories. Um, So a lot of what Julie does in this book is weave together her own personal narrative with the um, methodological contributions that she's making to how we think about um, technology, environment, ecology, the urban, and the constellation of all of these that produces um, contemporary modern knowledge and experiences of cities. So I highly recommend it. Um, It is really, really interesting. Again, really great narrative, and um, it was a pleasure to talk with Julie about it. So thank you very, very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Julie Z about her new book, Fantasy Islands. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Julie, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for the invite. I'm looking forward to it. So, Julie, um, let's get started, as is traditional um, for the channel, by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field. And specifically, um, you're a scholar in American studies, so what brought you to work on China? 
Well, I have two answers to that question. Uh, First of all, my research has been on uh, global cities and the transformation of urban space. So my first book was called Noxious New York, uh, where I look at um, urban environmentalism in New York City within a global context. So working on New York, um, the shift to Shanghai makes a lot of sense because it's also a very large global city that's facing environmental and urban development challenges. So the shift from um, an American studies context to working on on Shanghai, to me, makes sense intellectually as a project on global urban environmentalism. The real reason that I started working on this book was much more uh, personal, not academic. Uh, The book looks at... um, the rise of eco-city discourse in Shanghai. And the catalyst for me was that I heard about this uh, Dongtan eco-city and it was supposed to open up on an island uh, near Shanghai, Chongming Island, and that is where my family is from. So when I heard about uh, the eco-city, I was very interested as someone who works on researches urban environmental issues, but I was also very perplexed because it didn't fit what I thought I knew about Chongming at all. So for me, that kind of confusion about why this eco-city, why there, why now, was the real catalyst um, for the the project. Great. Now, you've already said a little bit about what brought you to um, the project specifically. Mm -hmm. You say early on in the book that American studies um, specifically is actually a good vantage point from Mm -hmm. which to study China. So would you speak a little bit uh, more about that? Why is American studies in particular a good place from which to study China? Well, American studies as a field is a good place to study environmentalism because it's very interested in ideologies. It's very interested as a field in consumption practices, um, material, uh, how material realities are tied to discourses. So that's sort of our approach um, as a field. But specifically in the area of environmentalism and Chinese environmentalism, I think American studies is an excellent place to position yourself as someone who's interested in Chinese political uh, because American studies is really interested in how ideas flow transnationally. And Chinese pollution, the way it's talked about in the U.S., is very much um, shaped by these kind of global flows and, and how, again, th- these discourses and uh, material realities are sort of related to each other. So for me, the introduction chapter has a lot to do with um, how America and China are sort of locked in together through this um, construction of the problem of Chinese pollution. So not only is American studies a good vantage point um, from which to study China, but also Shanghai, as you put it early in this introductory chapter, is also a very good place to think about, as you put it here, global ecology and urban change. So what makes Shanghai specifically, as we're now getting into um, the fabric of the book, what makes Shanghai um, such a good place for studying global ecology and urban change? Well, the pace of change in what's happened in Shanghai in the last um, two decades, um, especially the last decade, has been very um, intense. It's very fast. Uh, A lot of people, when they think about Chinese pollution, they think of Beijing and the haze. And a lot of that um, got a lot of attention during the Olympics. 
But I think Shanghai is a really interesting place because uh, there was a lot of um, global attention because of the World Expo. There's a lot that has happened very recently um, around uh, urban development and sort of the shape of what um, Shanghai will look like in terms of um, transportation, but also in terms of housing, um, the role of uh, tourism, the shift between manufacturing and kind of a different kind of economy. And ecology and sustainability are very key parts of those changes in the last 10 years. So that's why Shanghai, I think, is a very, very useful place to think about kind of big questions um, in China. Great. And later on, um, when we come to um, the first chapter or when listeners become readers and come to the first chapter, there's actually a really nice discussion there of the, the particular um, and most important ecological problems in mm-hmm. Shanghai right now, mm-hmm. which include you know, subsidence of the city, mm-hmm. poor water quality in some right. of the major rivers like the Huanghu River, carbon emissions, mm-hmm. poor housing conditions, overcrowding. So there's a lot of um, very specific details that the book gets into in opening up this issue. Right. And one of the things I talk about um, in the book is about climate change, because I think climate change is kind of the the meta problem that structures um, a lot of what's been happening, not just in China, but sort of globally in terms of environmental um, policy and environmental discourse. And Shanghai uh, is a very good place to think about climate change because it's a port city, because it's very vulnerable to sea level rise. So the and it's not unique to Shanghai. It's also true in New York and, and Mumbai and a lot of these cities that have the um, the, the histories as global port cities um, also now shape, face particular vulnerabilities to climate change because of sea level rise. So that's a, that's a great um, point that you also brought up for me. So the book looks at the ways that a number of sites, and we'll talk about some of those specific sites in a moment, reflect what you call the eco-modernization discourse of Shanghai through the lens of something called eco-desire. So Mm -hmm. to kind of launch into um, this more conceptual um, set of issues, can you introduce for us and for listeners who might not be familiar with this kind of idea, um, what is eco-desire as you're conceptualizing it here for the purposes of the arguments you're making in the book? Well, I talk about um, eco-desire as a productive force um, in Shanghai, and I I really wanted to talk about it as a desire that many different um, uh, people have or different levels of government or different um, actors in the kind of complex story around um, development. Uh, But one form of eco-desire is very simply a kind of green capitalist one, which is that we can improve the environment and make money. And usually that's sort of told as a, a, a eco desire through kind of technological utopianism. Like if we create this beautiful place and it's it's zero waste and carbon neutral and make money, then it's basically a win win. And so that's a very dominant discourse. And again, not at all unique to Shanghai or China at all. So that's the one form of eco desire. Um, there, there are also eco desires for um, the Western architects and engineers that are involved in actually bringing these projects to fruition and their eco desire um, is an aspect of that uh, green capitalist one um, and but they really see it more from a position of, you know, as clients, as their client base um, is increasingly, you know, 50 percent of some of the staffs of these major architecture and engineering firms are based in China as well. So 
it's a it's a different iteration of that um, green capitalist desire. Um, but I think that again, the, what I'm trying to say is that desire is a is a force that that um, shapes um, policy making um, at many different scales, whether that's kind of a local, urban, regional, national, international, transnational um, phenomenon. So. So you just mentioned the term scale, which is also really important here. You talk early in the introduction about attentiveness to the importance of scale as a key aspect of your methodology, and you call your methodology a multi-scalar approach. So Mm -hmm. um, would you mind talking a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, a lot of um, scale in the most basic, crudest sense is sort of like the the, lim- the scale of uh, how a problem is talked about. So um, it's it's a term that really comes from geography, um, but it operates in different fields. Um, so, but the, at the most basic form, it's kind of a spatial. Um, way of measuring things. Um, and so, but when I talk about scale, I talk about space. Um, and again, those different levels of space. So, you know, the eco city as a specific development, but also on the island of Chongming, at Chongming as part of a regional configuration in, in Shanghai and sort of Eastern along those provinces, national, international. So when I talk about scale and looking at it in a multi-scalar way, I'm talking about the different spatial ways in which um, scale is operating. But for me, scale is also a temporal phenomenon, too. So it's also about time, um, how you talk about time and space uh, kind of together. Um, And scale is a really important one in the case um, of Chinese environmentalism um, on its most crudest form, because a lot of the ways in which um, the problem of Chinese pollution um, has come about has to do with changes in kind of global production, global consumption. So what I really want to do in the book is also think about these ideas in a more complex way that doesn't kind of fall back into a kind of racialized, you know, yellow slash, you know, green peril narrative, which has a a broader history um, when talking about China. So for me, scale and thinking about scale in a complex way is a very important part of how I tried to approach the research. Great. Thank you. So later on, um, in a, just probably a few minutes or so, mm-hmm. um, we're going to get to the chapters that individually take on four case studies. Um, mm-hmm. present us with. There's going to be Dongtan Eco City or Eco City. Mm-hmm. There's going to be Chongming Island Eco Development. You'll talk about suburban real estate developments, and there's also a chapter on the World Expo. But before mm-hmm. that, we have a chapter that lays out some of the kind of more general and historical context within which these e- examples sit. The first chapter, um, chapter one, opens with an account of your own experience Mm -hmm. visiting China as a child in the 1980s. And for, um, so issues of historiography and writing tend to be really interesting to me. So I'm going to ask you about something that comes out of this. So it's really striking as a reader that so much of the analysis and so many of the chapters really bring us into your experience, right, as a historian Mm -hmm. and bring us into the first person and talk about your own Um, experiences growing up, your opinions alongside the analyses. So I would love to hear a little bit more about that approach um, to narrativizing these kinds of issues. For you, in what ways was it important to integrate and very explicitly articulate um, this, um, to integrate your own experience and your own positionality and perspective in the first person into the way that you were writing about these issues? 
for me, the personal um, narrative was central, and it, it actually um, didn't go as far as I had hoped to go um, in the initial conceptualization of the book, but I tried to keep it um, as much as I could, um, or, or as much as I was capable of through the research, um, in part because, as I said, you know, it was the reason why my personal connection is the reason why I started to do the research, and it was, for me, a way to sort of think through or try to understand better, you know, where my family came from, not just kind of a, in a, you know, totally personal way, but also like what happened to that island? What happened? Well, how was my parents' story um, tied to a broader narrative as well? Um, and so I think for me, my my relationship, and I talk about this in the book, um, to China has always been a very um, central one to my life, um, but it's not been a huge part of my research. So I think for me, it was really interesting to kind of think through about, you know, why my parents left, what it meant for them to um, come from Shanghai and then, you know, move to New York and what is the legacy of, you know, coming from a place that was always a global city and kind of is now um, reasserting itself in a very particular way around um, environmental themes, which is, you know, something that I ended up doing research on. It seemed totally separately from my personal background. So for me, the project was a nice way to kind of explore um, central personal questions, but in a way that kind of drew upon my um, research interests and my skill set. Um, but it was it was interesting, and it's definitely you know a challenge to um, try to write about personal things when you know it's not kind of the norm of how we talk and write. Um, so it's uh, I, I hope that it's useful for people, um, and it definitely you know that is how the 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 things I write about in the book are how I feel. You know, it, it's just it I, there's a part of me that doesn't understand or you know the cha- the pace of the change, and so this is a way for me to try to you know understand it a little bit better using the skill set that I have. So. Great. Thank you so much. So the chapter, um, chapter one, suggests that Chinese eco-desire is based on three important factors, and we're going to see these factors taken up in different ways over the course of the next chapters. Um, Mm -hmm. Technocratic faith in engineering, and we'll see Mm -hmm. that playing out later, a reliance on authoritarian political structures Mm -hmm. to facilitate environmental improvements, as you put it, and we'll, we'll see that as well, and a discourse of ecological harmony. Mm-hmm. man and nature. So as we um, unfold and sort of get into these um, particular uh, factors, the stage needs to be set for us to understand the context in which you, all of these uh, examples fall, and you do that in chapter one. Now you take us into, in chapter one, a project by the Ministry of Environmental Protection to approve echo provinces, echo cities, and echo towns in 2008, right? There are, I think, Mm -hmm. 14 echo provinces, 150 echo cities, and 11 echo counties. So Mm -hmm. what do we need to understand as listeners and readers about this um, project in 2008 to understand how to then fit um, the other case studies, or at least some of them, within Mm -hmm. this larger framework? Well, I think the broader... um context for uh, why these projects kind of emerge when they do and in in such um, huge numbers um, and with the imprimatur of the government um, has everything to do with, you know, the broader um, socio-political and environmental changes within China in the last 15 years. So, you know, with the rise of um, increasing production and um, the integration to the global market, there have been huge environmental 
additional costs and, and social costs as well. Um, and, you know, the, the attention that, you know, the, the cost of that development has had on the um, local um, people and, you know, the broader populations um, has, is a fairly well known at this point. And so, you know, by the time the Beijing Olympics comes around in 2008, you know, the Beijing air pollution has been talked about for years and years and years. And so, you know, there, I think that's part of the, the temporal um, context of why now it's sort of like, that's the point at which there's enough um, awareness, enough um, money, enough, um, of a of a of a belief that there this is something that has to be taken seriously, um, and so you know the government you know then kind of throws its weight behind this um, in a very particular time in very particular ways. Um, so I think that's the 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 macro context is you know development writ large, um, environmental degradation, which is you know fairly uh, well known at that point. So this is going to become a story about, and from these very very earliest pages about development, it's also going to be a story in some ways about failure. Um, mm-hmm. So the the highest profile echo village, mm-hmm. um, Huang Bayou, actually mm-hmm. failed, and you talk mm-hmm. about the reasons for this, um, in part being a lack of understanding of the local context. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want mm-hmm. to talk maybe a little bit about that um, that particular case? Yeah, um, I I didn't do research on Huang Bayou. The Huang Bayou case, I really um, worked off of um, Shannon May's research, and she's an anthropologist that came out of Berkeley, um, and she did a lot of on-the-ground um, work on that. Um, but drawing from her work, um, Huang Bayou was an eco-village that was proposed, um, and it was her in her analysis, um, it failed because there, the, the development, the cost much more than what the local um, villagers were able to afford. Ford, the the housing was built kind of around, you know, a car centered um, lifestyle. And, you know, for a lot of these uh, villagers, they didn't own cars, it took them far away from their um, fields where they worked. And so basically, on on many different levels, it was kind of a failure. And so um, there were very few um, it, uh, people living in them. So it was a very highly touted project, it was very um, politically connected, um, it got a lot of press, and then it just just kind of was fell apart and failed. And the part that I have a, the biggest problem with, with the Huang Bayou case, but also Dong Ken, is that um, the failure isn't really ever talked about. Um, these are kind of talked about in very highly glowing ways. There's a lot of media attention. And then then there's never any kind of follow-up about what happened there. <laughs> and so for me, the um, you, you actually, failure itself is not the problem. Um, for me, the inability to even recognize or articulate um, how how things failed means you can't ever change um, for any kind of to improve things. And, you know, so for me, that was the kind of the biggest lesson of Huang Waiyu was not only that it failed, but that it was sort of scrubbed off the map. Mm-hmm. And this is actually um, you interestingly bring into this conversation in this chapter also an example of some of the structures that went up during the 2008 Beijing Olympics, right? mm-hmm. including the bird's nest, which mm-hmm. got a lot of media play, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of one of these iconic images that's associated with the Beijing Olympics. And mm-hmm. as you put it, it's, it's now also largely abandoned. Right. right. I don't really think about it uh, anymore in that 
Right. And so I think um, for me, uh, the the bird's nest is a really good case of kind of an eco spectacle and architectural um, kind of wondrous um, facility. And then the afterlife of it um, kind of shows that, you know, there's there's really much more of a, a grim picture. And if you really want to do development that that works with people, you know, you have to have a really different kind of model of how you imagine that space and how you um, envision its uses afterwards. And so um, the after life of, of the bird's nest is another example of kind of a, a failure, even though it was a kind of, you know, really, really considered beautiful and, you know, um, highly significant at the time. Right. So thank you very much. So as we move into the book, we move into um, these different contexts. And the first mm-hmm. one we move into is Chongming. Mm-hmm. Now, um, chapter two is called Changing Chongming. And the mm-hmm. epigraphs to this chapter really start the argument right away. So mm-hmm. The epigraphs to this chapter present Chongming simultaneously as the home of an echo farm, where you can experience, among other things, the taste of fresh homemade cheese, and also as the site of major violence in wartime China. So can you maybe uh, bring us into this chapter by talking a little bit about that juxtaposition? In what ways is this simultaneous, uneasy kind of dual identity, or at least dual identity of Chongming, um, important for us to understand in order for us to then understand the arguments that you're making in this part of the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this chapter, um, uh, the other reason why I had a whole chapter on Chongming was because a lot of the media attention was really focused on the Dongtan eco-city. And one of the central critiques of the book is with the concept of an eco-city, the idea that there's can be one place that does the kind of good ecological work, you know, in an island or in a city. Um, and so the idea of an island itself, an island of ecological virtue is is part of the problem of what I think an eco-city is, is purporting to, um, you know, advance as its answer to the problem of pollution. So for me, Dongtan um, can't be really separated from the context of Chongming Island. I mean, as I said before, my my father's family is from Chongming, um, and Chongming has a very uneasy relationship to Shanghai. Anyway, um, it's it's part of Shanghai, but it's sort of culturally, economically, um, linguistically divided. Um, And so for me, um, I really wanted to situate Dongtan within the, the context of of Chongming development because it's it's not the same as downtown Shanghai by any means. And um, the epigraph really talks about the um, fantastic kind of imagination, imaginary of what this eco city was going to look like. You know what the the people um, who lived there were going to do when they lived there. Um, in the book that was produced by the um, Architects. It's not a public book, but it, it was sort of produced and you know given out. Um, but that was a really fascinating um, text in terms of the Im- the images that were being being used um, to promote the project. Um, and then the second one, um, the second epigraph you talk about was about um, Chongming's occupation. Um, when Chongming was occupied in Japan. And that was, again, the family perspective because that was around the time period when my father was born. And so for me, part of the disjunct, again, was, you know, how can this very shiny, high-tech, um, eco-glorious place also be this um, this um on the land, on the island, where there was all this really intense history of violence, really intense history of underdevelopment, of discrimination by uh, mainland Shanghainese um, people against um, their Chongming brothers, even though they're technically part of Shanghai, um, there's been a lot of um, intense kind of social discrimination against people from the island. So, for me. Um, 
uh, what I'm interested in is that tension again between the image and kind of the the reality of um, of that place. Um, Great. So Chongming had been a wartime site for brothels mm-hmm. or what um, have come to be known as comfort women, mm-hmm. and in particular, um, as you mentioned, a lot of the soldiers who um, were had STDs, right, mm-hmm. were sent to Chongming. And so this is a particularly dangerous and mm-hmm. safe place for women who are working in these capacities. Mm-hmm. It's now known as a home to birds, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's um, officially declared an ecological island in 2003. Mm-hmm. And you make a point in this chapter that what had made Chongming historically backward, right, mm-hmm. open space, underdevelopment, lack of industry, um, this is precisely what is now considered to be the suite of economic virtues mm-hmm. of Chongming. So can you talk about that a little? Yeah, I'm, I talk a little bit about the gendered construction of um, space, um, in part because um, Chongming has been involved, you know, alongside with Pudong as the kind of, you know, sites of um, development and kind of debates about what should happen to these spaces. You know, Pudong and Chongming looked very similar in the 1980s, and Pudong became, you know, the, the um, economic um, powerhouse of Shanghai. And, you know, there's there's no none of the landscape of, you know, the rural um, agricultural um, reality of Pudong, you know, in the 1980s doesn't exist anymore. So part of the context is, you know, how can we develop Chongming not and have it not look like skyscraper um, Shanghai, but then also, you know, we want to economically develop it. And so part of what I'm talking about is um, how um, these things uh, like the open space and um, kind of lack of technology um, get uh, constructed um, socially and also in terms of um, uh, being productive spaces um, and h- how that is a partially a gendered um, narrative as well. Um, so I don't know if that helps or not. Yes. And also, um, this is part of, I think, a larger um, set of points that you're making or what mm-hmm. you just said here and also elsewhere in the book. Um, about hierarchies Mm -hmm. and about um, the fact that this is very much a top-down story and you talk Mm -hmm. a lot about Mm eco-authoritarianism. Now, another part of that is uh, what's happening elsewhere in this chapter when you talk about bridges. Mm -hmm. A lot of us may um, ordinarily see bridges and tunnels as kind of no big deal, Mm -hmm. um, makes things easier. We don't think too much about Mm -hmm. bridges and tunnels, but you make a point here in particular by looking at the case of a tunnel bridge expressway Mm -hmm. that's um, opened in 2010 that connects Chongming Mm -hmm. Island to Shanghai um, via bridge and tunnel. You make the point here that bridges and tunnels like this are ways to re-inscribe, as you put it, geographical and political hierarchies. Mm -hmm. These are not neutral. Um, Mm -hmm. So can you maybe say a a little bit about that? Because I think that's a really important uh, point here that's not just about, right, what's happening in Chongming. Mm -hmm. It's also about how we experience our landscape. Right. Well, I think it's really interesting, and a lot of this draws from um, historian John Gillis's work, and he doesn't work um, on China per se, but he writes a lot about island cultures. Um, and one of the things he says, or he argues, is that um, islands are not isolated places. And in fact, people who live on islands are generally actually more cosmopolitan. They tend to be sailors, and you know, there's a lot of um, migration kind of back and forth and movement. But the perception of people, of non-islanders to islands, is very much about, you know, their backwardness or their isolation or kind of thinking that of their reality through their 
their framework as people who don't live on an island. Um, and so this goes back to the point um, you uh, made about the technological um, fetish of um, that undergirds a lot of these projects. Um, there, I think that, and this is broader than Shanghai, you know, this is broader to, you know, Chinese development, you know, in the post-communist era, but there's very much a fetish around technology and kind of big projects, you know, whether that's dams or, you know, water, moving water um, across the nation and, you know, the kind of the epic scale um, in which the the government wants to do these things. And so bridges um, fit in very nicely into that kind of um, heroic narrative um, around a big project. Uh, big project and big technology. And, you know, I, I talk a little bit about how a lot of the political leaders in, in um, the Communist Party are engineers, you know, and that's very much a kind of the political culture. And there's an authoritarianism that, you know, is embedded in that. And that's not true for all engineers. I think there are engineers who don't, uh, who resist that narrative or complicate that, but that's not the, that that's not these people and these contexts as well. So um, for me, you know, it was very interesting. You know, I hear my dad's story about, you know, going to Chongming from Shanghai and, you know, it used to take six hours and now, you know, it's a 20 minute drive and, you know, sort of what what does that mean? And, you know, again, the broader question that's um, for me always is like, you know, why are these projects proposed? Who benefits from them? Is this really better? Um, who is it really better for? And so on. Um, in the eco city context, what I thought was very interesting was that these projects were being proposed and the it was always being told that, you know, the people that are what's going to benefit are the birds. The birds are going to love this place, you know, and it just doesn't make any sense to me as an as a outsider that you could even rhetorically make that argument that the birds would benefit from building, you know, a city where there are wetlands that are very sensitive places. Um, but that's exactly what these a lot of these documents were trying to say. Mm-hmm. So. so as we this is actually a great segue because as we move into the next chapter, which is all about Dongtan, we really look at uh, or you look at and help us see the disjunct between what the kind of rhetoric is, right? What's mm-hmm. being claimed and what's actually behind the kinds of motivations um, behind these sorts of or undergirding these sorts of projects. So chapter three takes us right into Dongtan and it. You talk here about, um, in the context of engineering, fantasy and dreaming, right? Fantasy is mm-hmm. in the title of the book. The chapter title here is Dreaming Green. And you take us into a context in which Dongtan, as you put it, is projecting a kind of global fantasy of what an ecological life looks like in a particularly rural Chinese context. So assuming that listeners may not have much background in or maybe have never heard of Dongtan, right? Let's start at the beginning. What was the original project for Dongtan and like why did this plan make sense to developers? The original plan was to build an eco city uh, on the eastern um, shore of Chongming Island. Um, and it was supposed to be a carbon neutral, um, zero waste um, city 
that without cars and uh, there was supposed to be a city uh, original plan was 500,000 and then it got scaled back to 50,000 and the location was on ecologically sensitive wetlands um, where there are many birds that um, stop there along there's a major bird flyway that's considered one of the eight most important bird flyways in the world so it's um, a very well known um, environmental um, spot and an, an important one for birds um, and so that the plan again was for uh, this city you know either 500,000 or 50,000 depending on when you're talking about it um, to be built on these wetlands um, and why did they think that was a good idea that is a that's a very good question <laughs> um, and so why it, it wasn't built you know just to make it clear and you know the project failed for lots of different reasons including the fact that the main proponent for the project um, was in prison for corruption um, there was a lot of finger pointing between the the clients who were trying to um, do the project the proponent for the Dongtan Eco City uh, was the Shanghai Industrial Investment Corporation, and they are the real estate uh, investment arm of the Shanghai municipality. So um, they they were the ones that were you know calling for the project. Arab. Uh, which is a British-based architectural and engineering firm, were the um, was the cl- company that was supposed to build it. Um, so those were the two main actors. So one of the um, when the project sort of started falling apart, they started pointing fingers at each other and and so on and so forth. So um, it wasn't actually built in the the way it was supposed to um, be. And it was supposed to the first phase was supposed to come out around the World Expo. So it was time to kind of go alongside um, that as well. And we'll talk about the World Expo Mm -hmm. um, in a few minutes, too, because there's a whole chapter on that. So um, you mention here, well, you suggest here, among other things, that this dream of Dongtan was ultimately, Mm -hmm. as we kind of talked a little bit about before, not about ecology. It was not Mm -hmm. about sustainability. Mm -hmm. It was about profit, and it was about Mm -hmm. image making. And one of the things um, that you credit for the ultimate failure, right, of this project on Mm -hmm. the part of Arup. Um, this planner was precisely that they didn't take their own um, ecotopianism right mm-hmm. Sort of mm-hmm. seriously enough. Rather than focusing on ecotopianism, they were focused on techno utopianism. Mm-hmm. For them, it was an engineering problem. So mm-hmm. can you can you speak to that a little bit? Um, yeah, I think that when you talk to Arab, um, they are very much, you know, the engineer's engineer. Uh, that's sort of the firm's um, approach. And they really believe that um, you can kind of engineer your way out of any problem. Um, and so I, I really try to say that, you know, the eco city concept, you know, really comes out of, you know, a diff- uh, an imaginative place. Oh, um, in the 1960s, in the U.S. context, it was very much a countercultural kind of reality. Um, but the so I don't have a problem with eco cities per se. I have a problem with you know eco cities that don't take its own um, uh, own fantasies really seriously beyond that of the of of their clients that only see the 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 project from their own you know how can this you know, make money perspective. Um, so, you know, I talked to some of the um, project um, representatives and, you know, they, they didn't really have answers beyond, you know, this is for the birds, you know. And so, you know, there's a lot that we can think more creatively about climate change and about, you know, how people should live um, and where people should live and and so on. And, you know, I don't think that they, they even kind of acknowledged or entertained those. And so that was the kind of problem that I had with, with their approach to it. 
So as we move into chapter four, we move from a fantasy echo city mm-hmm. to the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And we open um, in chapter four in this really, uh, I mean, for, really surprising for a reader um, who, who's not familiar with these kind of contexts, place called Thames Town, like the mm-hmm. River Thames. Mm-hmm. So this is a town on Shanghai's outskirts built in 2001, and it's part of what's called the One City, Nine Towns Project. Mm-hmm. This is a super fascinating case. Um, can you bring us in by talking about the larger context of, like, what is this One City, Nine Towns project, and how does Thames Town fit into this specifically? Yeah, One City, Nine Towns was a project um, that was basically the idea was the Shanghai's um, urban development was going to be structured around building one large city and nine towns. Um, and this was going to relieve the population and congestion pressure in kind of downtown, you know, the traditional heart of Shanghai and sort of, you know, as a population kind of dispersal structure um, and also around housing development as well. Um, the the trick or the, the theme um, part of it uh, was that each development was supposed to kind of mimic the architectural style of a particular nation. So you've already mentioned Thamestown. So Thamestown was the, quote, British development. Um, And then there was a German town, a Spanish town, an Italian town. There was a Chinese, traditional Chinese town that was actually built by an American architect. Um, There was a Northern European town and so on. Um, So I I went to, I think, four of the nine towns. Um, and my particular interest um, in these developments, because there's a lot you could say about them, they're, they're very interesting. Um, but what I wanted to talk about was how nature uh, and environmental themes were a key component of a few of these towns. So I look at in Thamestown, there's a lot of things about clean air and kind of green um, landscaping. Um, in the German town, there's, again, an attention on German technology. Um, and then uh, I think I look at uh, the northern European town. Um, and the, uh, I forget what, the Italian town, I talk a little bit about there, there, because there, well, that was also the site where a lot of the people who were displaced from the World Expo were kind of put into the Italian town. Um, so for me, uh, the focal point that kind of um, held that was how um, constructions of um, nature kind of undergird how these national um, architectural styles or kind of national discourses were being kind of um, imagined there. And this is, um, I just need, I need to say for listeners, because this is fascinating, and this is totally either a TV program or a novel waiting to happen. <laughs> um, you describe Anting, the town Anting, as mm-hmm. the kind of Mercedes-Benz of the towns. Mm-hmm. There's another one, Pujiang, which is mm-hmm. the Versace of the towns. Mm-hmm. But my favorite has to be Luodian, which is described as the Scandinavian sex ski lodge, which is perfect um, given the description here. So listeners, check out chapter four and somebody make a TV series out of this and I will watch it all the time. So Thamestown, um, as you mentioned, is really notable, among other things, um, for its green space. And you talk mm-hmm. about um, the importance of lawns and trees, mm-hmm. specifically in the context of suburbanization and the way mm-hmm. that suburbanization in this area is bound up in these ideas of nature and echo mm-hmm. and the built environment. So can you speak a little bit to that, um, suburbanization specifically, as mm-hmm. it animates um, your reading here? 
Yeah, I think that um, Thamestown is a is a very interesting place to walk around, and you know, there's a lot of different architectural styles Brit- from um, Britain kind of mashed up together. So it's very surreal um, experience to to go there. Um, the The reason why nature is so important is because um, it becomes a selling point for the the development itself. So um, part of why um, nature becomes this um, selling point in clean air is that you know it's seen as this um, kind of antidote to kind of the the problems of um, Shanghai's pollution and kind of urban pollution more more broadly, you know, that you will have clean air and good hygiene, you know, from this kind of landscape. And so what I'm trying to argue is that, you know, a a certain construction of nature gets um, kind of built into the project to kind of um, basically increase the real estate value of it so that there's, a again, the the natural capital, which is something I talked about in the Dongtan case, you know, that there's a a way that nature gets capitalized itself. to, in the in the service of these these um, suburban developments or these eco cities, um, that's sort of what's happening is what I'm trying to say. So it's not just this neutral like um, greenwashing, even though that's part of what it is, but that it actually has this you know economic rationale um, attached to it that's very real, um, and that so you can justify higher housing costs, you know, because of this um, thing. So it's not um, just something that's like a, a symbol that's separated from kind of uh, economic or material reality. Great. Now, Pujang was not just the Versace of these towns. It was mm-hmm. also a place um, where thousands of families mm-hmm. were displaced to by the World Expo. So mm-hmm. thousands of families were relocated to mm-hmm. this Versace of towns um, after being displaced by the focus of Chapter 5. Chapter mm-hmm. 5 brings us into the 2010 World mm-hmm. Expo. Mm-hmm. So... What image of Shanghai, could you um, speak a little bit to this, what image of Shanghai was the expo intended to present, both nationally and also internationally? You talk a lot about this in the chapter, so could you open this up a little bit for listeners? Yeah, the Shanghai World Expo uh, was uh, uh, the first expo that took place in um, mainland um, China um, ever. Uh, The expo had also, it's been in Japan before, but this was the first time it it came to China. So it was very much um, in the vein, you know, 2010 is right after, you know, the 2008 Beijing Olympics. So both of these kind of uh, mega global events are meant to project a particular image of China kind of in the world stage. Um, and for me, the World Expo is a very interesting um, event to look at because the um, rhetoric of sustainability and urban development is very much a central part of how the World Expo um, was kind of presented in China to Chinese audiences, but also global audiences. So there's a lot of um, work going on in the expo. Um, And uh, the focus of this expo, uh, the focus that I have on the expo is looking at the national pavilions um, as opposed to kind of the, the, the national pavilions like, you know, Every country has its own pavilion that they they represents their country. So Abu Dhabi and, you know, the American, the U.S. pavilion, the, you know, the England has a pavilion that, you know, got a lot of attention architecturally. So then the national pavilions are are really interesting. But my focus is on these um, special pavilions like so the city being and um, uh, I've now forgotten the names of them. They're not coming off the tip of my tongue. Um, urban and planet, urban planet of the future. 
Yeah, I can't believe I've forgotten them having gone to them so many times, you know. Um, but yeah, so what I was really interested in is looking at those pavilions because you really see the um, the Chinese perspective um, much more explicitly than in the national um, pavilions. So, so can you um, is does one of these pavilion experiences particularly stand out for you as something? Um, that was especially formative for you in terms of what you were thinking about in this chapter and that you'd like to describe for listeners? Uh, yeah, the urban planet is probably the the easiest um, example. Again, the pavilions are all kind of melding in my head right now. Um, but the, I think the urban planet um, is the easiest to kind of interpret um, in relationship to the key arguments in the book, in part because there's very much a kind of standard um, narrative about, you know, environmental decline. And, you know, there, there are large images of kind of the most dystopian, you know, landscapes of garbage and oil flames, you know, and then you immediately kind of um, physically, you know, pivot to to um, a different uh, room that's much more, you know, high tech and techno utopian. Mm -hmm. After uh, there's a strange, you know, moment where you're passing a single um, like shipyard worker from Shanghai, you know, so there's an interesting transition moment, you know, in one of the pavilions where, you know, there's a sad looking, you know, industrial worker that looks like he's just, you know, completely, you know, irrelevant now, you know, kind of in this fan, uh, transition stage between, you know, you have this environmental de degradation and you have this like really beautiful, shiny, happy, you know, good technology that's going to, you know, answer your problems. And then you have this like, you know, single um, worker that's right. doing some kind of, um, you know, industrial labor. So I think part of the um, spatial and ideological arguments um, in that pavilion have to do around um, uh, the transformation of Shanghai um, from kind of, you know, the, the heart of, you know, manufacturing and industrial labor and shipyard building um, to kind of the global city uh, par excellence, you know, alongside, you know, New York and London and Paris, then you have Shanghai and, you know, kind of tourism and a nice landscape, you know, the, uh, waterfront that's actually for, you know, parks and, and nice uses as opposed to kind of really dirty industrial manufacturing. Um, so I think that's part of, you know, what you see in, you know, you see it actually, you know, spatially when you go through the pavilion and you see it kind of rhetorically and ideologically through, you know, the images of what's being presented. Right. And you could hear my cat in the background going, ask her more about the marginalization of the industrial worker at the expo, mom. So, of course, I'm going to have to um, make I'm going to have to attend to her desires and ask you that. So um, the, the chapter actually really interestingly talks about um, this marginalization, right, of precisely this figure that you were talking about and also of peasants mm -hmm. specifically. And this becomes really interesting because as you. Um, mentioned here, there's an artist, um, Tsai Guoqiang, um, who actually, at the same time as this expo is happening, um, mm -hmm. does this whole piece on peasant da Vinci's mm -hmm. right, to really speak to this marginalization. Mm -hmm. um, did you want to talk about that at all? This, this larger phenomenon, I mean, of marginalization of this mm -hmm. particular kind of person, mm -hmm. or kinds of people in the context of this vision for the future? Right. I mean, I think it was very interesting um, for me, you know, to learn about, um, you know, this the creation of kind of a new um, citizen subject and a kind of part of what I, I'm trying to argue 
is that um, the the government's trying to kind of point people into a certain direction. And, you know, part of that is in forecasting, you know, the China is going to move from rural to urban, you know. And so that's both um, those are both, you know, um, per- prescriptions and, you know, also prescriptions that, you know, end up being their own kind of reality. Um, but one of the things that I think is happening in the in in the political context is the creation of kind of new um, modern consumer citizens um, that are urban. And, you know, the what the shift for me, it seems to be, um, not as somebody who has a lot of experience in this, is that there's a shift between the rural identity and an environmental identity. And that is um, a spatial shift um, as well. And also kind of an it's an ideological move as well. Um, and so uh, I think that was, um, you could see that in one of the pavilions where they talk about um, kind of how, you know, the, these citizens that get, uh, these rural subjects get displaced into an eco city and then, you know, that, but their lives, I mean, it really narrates it as, you know, their lives improve in all these kinds of ways, you know, and it doesn't kind of um, talk about, you know, what that might mean for the people who have to who are forced to, you know, leave their, you know, their villages or, you know, the, the lives in which they've been used to living for, you know, at least, a, you know, a few generations. So um, I think, you know, that there is a there is something that's happening about, you know, the rise of the environmental um, middle class consumer that is about a repudiation of a rural subject. Um that's right. And a particular kind of subject who doesn't mm-hmm. wear pajamas in public. Yes. So there's a whole pajama ban happening right. here, right. Um, which is, part, I, you know, I say this kind of jokingly because I, it's um, I just love the phrase pajama ban. And mm-hmm. I think I'm going to try to use this as much <laughs> as possible. But also this is part of a larger um, serious argument you're mm-hmm. making here about particular notions of betterment. What mm-hmm. does quality mean? What does betterment mean in this context? Mm-hmm. In a context in which, you know, the official slogan for this expo is better city, mm-hmm. better life. And there's mm-hmm. a lot encoded in that simple sounding mm-hmm. word mm-hmm. Um, that's very much about disciplining mm-hmm. um, the kinds of and, and producing a new kind of subjectivity, as you just um, were talking about, mm-hmm. in a way that's, um, again, very much about discipline and control, mm-hmm. even when it's couched in these, um, in the language of harmony, mm-hmm. right, and greenness. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, before we move on, and before we kind of come to the conclusion, since one of the arguments of the book in general is um, about the discourse of and, and the kind of dialogues about harmony specifically, mm-hmm. um, as as it shapes what's happening here, can you maybe say a little bit um, about that? And it, this very much comes up in this chapter, this idea of harmony between man and nature. Um, mm-hmm. What's important for us to understand about that in order for us to understand what's happening here? Right. And I think that, you know, the harmony discourse and the idea about high quality and low quality, um, these are um, concepts that have particular um, meanings in the Chinese context. And so I think um, it's very important to read, you know, calls for harmony within, you know, the political context of, you know, fears of, you know, of the communist government, fears of any kind of, you know, subjects that don't, conform to their, you know, um, political realities. So, you know, you can't take it outside of that, you know, um, authoritarian political context. Um, And so 
for me, the calls for eco harmony, you know, have to be, you know, understood within that. You can't separate them from them. One of the things that I was really interested in was that Western environmentalists were very captivated by what was happening in China around environmental um, policy. And, you know, Tom Friedman and New York Times columnist, you know, he has this whole thing about, you know, well, why can't we be like China? China just, you know, does this stuff and we don't have to worry about, you know, the politics around it. Um, you know, I think he was talking about the banning of plastic bags or something. And so I think, you know, one of the eco desires that I talk about, because we've talked about the Chinese um, context, is that the eco, one of desires I'm trying to argue against is a Western environmentalist and their uh, their attachment to eco-authoritarianism as a political structure in which to achieve environmental ends. And, you know, that it, it's not just Tom Friedman. You see that a lot. You see that, you know, in the in the um, architects and engineers, you know, like, oh, well, you know, we can do all this great stuff, you know, and, and we don't have to worry about the politics and we can build these big big um, things and do it sustainably, you know, and I think that that's a very dangerous um, uh, seduction to have, you know, this kind of belief that the ecological ends justify the authoritarian means. That's right. And in fact, in the conclusion, one of the major points, um, at least that I took away from the conclusion that you're making here, is that even though the book is about China, it's also about the U.S. Mm -hmm. right? And I think what you just said really speaks to that. Um, mm -hmm. one of um, many ways we can interpret that. Mm -hmm. um, the conclusion also argues that while there's nothing wrong, right, nothing inherently wrong with echo desire, mm -hmm. what's missing, as you put it here, is a sense of humility and mm -hmm. a sense of self-reflexivity, a kind of mm -hmm. pause on mm -hmm. capitalist growth and development. So mm -hmm. as we come to the conclusion of our conversation, mm -hmm. um, and we are now in the conclusion of the book, mm -hmm. can you say a little bit about that? Well, I think that, you know, part of the problem from many different fields and many different governments and many different, in, you know, actors is this kind of idea that there should be one fix, you know, that if we just if we just did this, then, you know, everything would be fine. Um, and I think, you know, if you if you're an ecologist or someone who studies ecosystems, you know, you have a very different approach, you know, they're very locally specific. Um, and that you can't really go find like, oh, if we just do that, then all will be well, you know, and I think that, you know, part of the what I'm trying to say is that, you know, there, what needs to be for me at the center point is, you know, questions of um, power, questions of, you know, place, um, questions of, you know, those are like the core questions for me, you know, so it's not even just, you know, carbon reduction emissions, you know, like carbon reduction emissions, you know, as a fetish by itself without understanding, you know, place and power is, is it's, it doesn't do anything for me. To me, that's not an answer. That's just pro probably a, a just reproduction of, you know, what's going and uh, of the problem to begin with. So I don't know if that helps or not. So there's a ton of stuff now as we're at the conclusion of our conversation. There's a ton of stuff in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. There's some really wonderful reflections, case studies, um, workings out of many of the concepts that we've talked about. And many mm -hmm. we haven't, like utopia, dystopia, mm -hmm. descriptions of these pavilions. Um, so I highly urge listeners to get a copy of the book um, and explore it. But in the meantime, is there anything that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? Um, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> not a problem. 
So, Julie, now that the book is out, and congratulations on it, um, what's next for you? What are you currently working on? Well, I continue to work on issues of um, climate justice and environmental justice. That's really, you know, the center of the work that I've done. Um, and my first book, and I've done a lot of work in the Central Valley in California that I've looked at sort of social justice movements. Um, my, my my interests are really bottom-up kind of interests. Um, the China book is kind of an anomaly in the sense that, you know, this is not a book about, you know, social movements, um, though I try, you know, where I can to, to include voices of people who are kind of directly affected in them. But for me, you know, the you you can't really understand bottom up without top up and vice versa, you know. And so it goes back to your scale point as well. So, you know, about how we can't understand things in isolation. You know, for me, you can't understand bottom without top. You can't understand with China without, you know, going across the Pacific into the U.S., you know. And so where it's taking me right now is around climate um, justice issues um, or in actually probably more accurate climate injustice um, so landscapes where um, people, whether it's, you know, indigenous Arctic populations up um, in near the Arctic Circle are kind of facing immediate relocation because, you know, their towns are being washed away by climate change or, you know, small island Pacific nations in, you know, are also facing a lot of the same problems. So I'm looking at a lot of how those projects are being um, represented kind of visually um, and by activists. Um, so um, climate justice, um, it's, it's a very nascent project, but, you know, climate justice movements and kind of issues of culture and representation are kind of the center point of where I think I'm moving on the next project. So, Great. Well, thanks so much for making time, Julie. It's really been a pleasure and best of luck with the next project. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thank you guys for listening and we will see you next time.